Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Fantasy. Our guest today is Scott Boyer, author of Bobby Ether and the Jade Academy, a book which belongs in the same genre as the Harry Potter books or Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. The really good books in this area are ones that not only entertain us but teach us about ourselves and what it means to be human, and I feel this is one of those books that accomplishes both these goals. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Scott, the title of the book is Bobby Ether and the Jade Academy. Just who is Bobby Ether? So Bobby is a 16-year-old kid growing up in the suburbs of L.A. He's into sports. He likes comic books. He's a pretty much normal teen. Um, and that that actually was really important to me. I wanted Bobby to be a normal kid with no tragic backstory, no mysterious past. You know, it was important. I didn't want him to grow up in an orphanage or anything like that. And as the book goes on, we come to find out that he is actually incredibly special. But at least at the start of the book, like I said, he's just a normal teen growing up in L.A. Okay, this is a question that occurred to me. Where did you get the name Bobby Ether? I've never heard the name Ether before as the last name. Well, it was, there was a baseball player a few years ago named Andre Ether. Right. And ironically, I did think about that. Um, so uh, Bobby was just a name that I liked. It, you know, just kind of came out of nowhere. But um, Ether was specifically designed because of the reference to the uh, invisible layer of our of our um, uh, atmosphere, as well as the colorless, odorless gas. And one of the themes in this book is the use of special abilities via uh, a mechanism I call anima, in which it's, a, it's an invisible force. It's an invisible power out there that exists. So I, I chose the word Ether to represent that. And then I thought about using it as his last name, and ironically, I did think of Andre Ether, and I was like, well, if if that could be a real last name, then Ether can be a real last name. No reason not to. Why not? Anyway, what about the Academy? What's it like? So the Academy is a, it's a secluded monastery um, in the mountains of Tibet, and it was built on this, this special site, this font of, of earth energy, the anima that I mentioned briefly. And this anima is... It's a, the universal life, the universal energy that connects all living things. So it's like uh, chi or spirit or soul, in, you know, within humans. Um, and so this this monastery was built there, and it was originally Buddhist. Um, but over the years, there's a, a secular group called the academics that have taken it over, and they're using it for uh, try to advance human evolution, if you will. They're trying to uh, unlock the abilities, you know, naturally within people to use anima. Uh, so we have these these academics doing this very sort of scientific research and trying to, you know, like I said, unlock sort of the next stage in human evolution. And then we have the monks who are still spiritual and still religious, and they're the ones who are actually training the students. So what exactly is Bobby's role in all this? How does he end up at this strange monastery on the other side of the world? So it starts with a nightmare. We've got Bobby waking up in the middle of the night from having uh, just this horrible nightmare about a car accident. And when he wakes up, he finds that there's been an earthquake, uh, except that it, it was a very localized earthquake. Even just looking out of his bedroom window, he can see that it didn't impact his neighbor's yard or their, their pool in their backyard or anything like that. So it starts from that point, uh, and, and then he comes to find out that maybe the nightmare wasn't actually just a nightmare after all, and, and it could have actually happened. You know, the phone rings, and he gets a call from the local hospital, and it turns out this, this nightmare about this car accident actually did happen. And that sets the stage for everything that takes place from, from that point on. He, he ends up at, at the academy because they find out about, you know, this, this – um, triggering of his abilities, because that's in fact what they were. 
uh, and they he ultimately ends up at the academy, and he ends up being sort of um, well, he's sort of the missing link to what the the academics have been searching for all along. Besides the monastery, are there other special places in the book, or are the supernatural phenomena limited to the characters? So there are some some other special places. I had some fun with a couple of um, of, of locations in the book. Uh, one of them uh, that we see early in the book is this place called the Eagle's Nest. It's um, it's sort of a biodome designed to to develop and and um, and provide a power source for for energy use. So it's an indoor forest. It's you know, and it's it's got um, this glowing building inside of it called the Nexus, and the Nexus acts as the focal point for all of the the natural and energy that's collected throughout the forest. And then there's also um, this sphere tram, which is something I had a little fun with. It's it's like a um, like a train, but it's spherical in shape, and it moves in in multiple directions. So we can go up and down, left and right, even move it you know diagonally. And then at the end of the book, we actually find out it can move through other dimensions, so to speak. It can actually move through the spirit realm. Okay. It sounds fascinating. Tell us more about the book itself. What exactly is it about? At, at, at the core of it, it's really about Bobby's journey. Okay. So he's, you know, we've got this kid who's taken from his home and he's thrust into this strange new world. Um, and he, he's forced to try and figure out what exactly is going on. One of the things that, that comes into play fairly early is that he was given this uh, an amulet by his grandfather, and um, he, he doesn't really know what its purpose is or doesn't think it has any purpose until he comes to find out that maybe it has some meaning to it. So he he's on this search to uncover the truth about the Academy, about his family's past, uh, about the people around him, because between the headmistress of the school and some people he meets early in the book, he has no idea who to trust. Um, Meanwhile, there's a, a shadowy figure. There's an assassin that stalks him throughout the book. And it's very much a mystery of figuring out what's going on. Uh, you know, is he uh, being nurtured? Uh, is he being betrayed by people? You know, who's there to help him? Who's, who's there to, to exploit him? Uh, it's, it's very much a mystery in that regards. Sounds like everybody's journey through life. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully without the shadowy assassin part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How would you describe the genre? Is it similar to other titles people already know? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, so it's it's for young adults. So it's, you know, geared towards primarily high school kids, I would say. It's first and foremost a, a fast, you know, uh, fun adventure story. That's really what it's designed to be. It, what sets it apart is that it is not pure fantasy. It is can be read as such, but I wrote it. And the intention is to, to to blend elements of spirituality and spiritual fiction. So from a from a story arc, most people would would think would say that it's similar to the books that you mentioned, to Harry Potter, uh, to Miss Her- Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Those would be the best examples of of books that follow the the story most similarly. But again, what I tried to do was to imbue it with a sense of spirituality, a sense of purpose, a sense of depth and meaning to what allows Bobby and the other characters to perform their paranormal abilities. And that to me is, uh, is, is something worth noting about the book. You know, you've mentioned spirituality a number of times now. How is this spirituality conveyed and how is it distinguished from typical magic in other books? So great question. Um, I did some research on this because I wanted to find a, a compelling vehicle and uh, I, I used, again, what I call anima, and that's, that's Latin for breath of life. Um, so I really liked that phrase. It really is, I think, um, a proper categorization of, of what Bobby and, and the other people use to perform these special abilities. It is the life energy, the universal energy of all living things that they tap into to perform these tasks. And, and within humans, we would call that the soul or the spirit or chi, as it's sometimes referred to in various Asian cultures. Um, and they simply use this to perform their abilities. So one of the analogies I actually make in the book is that of gravity or even magnetism, you know, it is a, a, um, a real phenomenon. It exists in the world. You can't see it, uh, but you can control it. You can manipulate, you know, both gravity and magnetism if you know how. And that's essentially what these characters are doing. There is a sort of a genetic component to it as well. So uh, I have, I use the term exos, which is from the Latin word exomnis, 
which means sleepless or wakeful, you know, genetically speaking. So there are these characters who have genetic uh, traits that allow them to perform these abilities more so than, say, you or I would be able to be. So they're not exactly mutants. We're not going into X-Men or anything like that, but they just have sort of a leg up on the average person. Yeah, well, I think that gravity or magnetism both have an effect, but so far I think we've only learned to control magnetism. Controlling gravity is still a ways in the future. (laughs) Well, (laughs) fair fair, fair point. Okay. So then does everyone at the Academy have these special powers? At the Academy, yes. I mean, the people who are brought to the Academy are brought there because they have – uh, you know, a genetic predisposition, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that they are automatically powerful, that they automatically have um, the ability to to use their, their abilities. They have to train. And that's sort of a central theme in the book is, you you know, the abilities are not just given, they are earned. Um, so Bobby has to go through that at, at times. And some people specialize in certain aspects uh, more than others. So I already mentioned briefly, Bobby's grandfather, Jeremiah, who's a clairvoyant, and and that's sort of his specialty. So he has glimpses of the future that he can then act upon. There's another, one of my favorite antagonists in the book, uh, Willie, who I, you know, sometimes call Willie the Creep, who is this, this little bald boy who's, uh, he's an empath. So he actually feeds off of other people's negative emotions. So he's, he's a good example of that. And then there's the headmistress who runs the academy and she's got some, some pretty major sort of telekinetic powers, um, so, yeah, for the most part, everybody is. But those are the, really some of the heavy hitters in the book. There's a lot of people, a lot of other students like Bobby, who struggle and don't necessarily you know, manifest or are able to do much of anything at all. Sounds like a pretty interesting group of, I guess these are major characters. What else can you tell us about the cast? Uh, so, yeah, just some of my favorite characters in the book. Uh, there's, um, there's Jinx. Jinx is the headmistress's son. And he actually develops a, a close friendship, becomes Bobby's best friend um, in, in the book. And uh, I, I love Jinx because he's he's one of the, the most brilliant students to ever come through the academy. But he he struggles. He can't actually do anything with his energy, with the anima. He cannot perform any of the tasks. He's everything he does is you know backfires. His his abilities are twisted. That's why we call him Jinx. But he's also one of the youngest students, so he's taken all the courses, he knows all the material, he just struggles to be able to actually, you know, do anything with it. Another one of my favorite characters is Master Zhang, that's Bobby's instructor, and he's one of the uh, monks at the academy. He's very small, very childlike, Um, I always think of him as sort of very pure of heart, Uh, but he's also very much a rebel. One of the things that his character is, is all about is trying to find these secrets within the monk's sacred scrolls so that he can free the monks from the oppression of the academics who are, are basically using the, the scrolls as leverage to to control and manipulate the monks and, and keep them uh, in service. And then um, last but not least, uh, the two henchmen in the book, Hayward and Simpkins. These are two of my other favorite characters. Uh, they are sort of foils of each other. They, uh, one of them, Hayward is, is very big. He's this obese, you know, slovenly guy. Uh, and he's also empathic. He likes to, to turn other people's uh, energies against them and and actually hurt them with their own powers. And then his partner, uh, uh, Simpkins is very, very frail, very skeletal. And he's sort of devoid of emotion. He's just all about, all about the job, all business. And, And both of them, they dress in this these this seventies garb. I mean, they're just kind of stuck in like the Saturday Night Fever, you know, um, era, and um, you don't really know why to begin with. And so I, I had a little fun with them because later on, when you figure out uh, what their storyline is, I, I think it's pretty pretty cool. You know, one of the characters in there that sort of appealed to me was Ashley, the headmistress's daughter. Yeah, Ashley. Um, Ashley's a fun character. She is um, sort of the cliche mean girl. And that's intentional. She, um, you know, kind of runs the school or at least the students. She's the most, you know, talented uh, since her mother uh, in terms of her abilities. Um, And she lets everybody know it. Uh, But it turns out that she has sort of a depth of character to her. And and like I said, I made her kind of intentionally cliche-ish, intentionally the mean girl to give it some some um, juxtaposition to some of the other characters so that when you find out what her, her character really is all about later on, Hopefully it, it you know gives you um, some, I don't know, appreciation or perspective for how she got to be who she was. 
What about the main character, Bobby? What's his personality? I guess first and foremost, Bobby is uh, loyal. He is committed. He's dedicated. You know, he, he comes to the academy under some very tragic circumstances, and his primary goal is to try and get revenge at, you know, at the people who, who harmed him. And so I think in that regard, he's very relatable, and that's important. You know, he's a, like I mentioned before, he's a normal kid, but he's also just going through a really horrible situation that ideally the reader can, can empathize with. Uh, you know, he's caught up in this in this crazy situation where he's been taken to this place on the other side of the world. And he's meanwhile lost very much in this sea of confusion and anger, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, desire for, for revenge. So at some level, I wanted his character arc to to parallel that of a normal teen just going through the changes of life, going from becoming a child to I mean, from being a child to becoming an adult. Uh, but this is, you know, times 10. I mean, this is, you know, hyper transition. So on top of you know, just being normal, having normal teenage angst, he has this very emotional, you know, drama that's playing out all around him. As I said, sounds like a typical teenager. Um, <laughs> how does Bobby's character evolve during the story? Because it sounds like he's going through quite a bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. He's going through a lot. And and he evolves mainly through the process of discovery. Uh, so we touched on briefly, you know, he's got this clue, these clues left by his, his clairvoyant grandfather. And so that's sort of the first step is he, he figures out that, oh, maybe there's something here worth investigating. Oh, maybe I, I should, you know, pull this thread, so to speak, and see where it leads. So he's very much on a, on a, a path of discovery with regards to his family's history. Um He's also, you know, on a path of discovery about himself. He needs to learn to to deal with his emotions because, as we come to find out in the book, even even though he is special, the the abilities don't just come naturally. He has to earn them, and it was very intentional that he had to earn them by overcoming some, you know, the, by dealing with and confronting the dark energies. The, sorry, the dark emotions within him, the hate and the anger. Um, so. This manifests in the book by way of this invisible barrier that he has around his core, around his his soul, so to speak. And that's sort of where his power resides. And in order to be able to access abilities, he has to breach this invisible wall. And so that's the metaphor that I use for for his journey, because he comes up against that invisible wall numerous times. And, And each time you know that he fails, he has to figure out why in 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 how to push through that and get to where he needs to be. You know, you've described what most of us have to go through in life. And uh, I think that, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything you say about Bobby resonates to some extent with me about, and, and probably everybody else. We've all made this journey and we've all encountered a lot of the problems that Bobby did. Although perhaps, as you say, not as in, not as an extremist setting, but it's good to see how people go about conquering these. And I think people can learn from those, especially the young adults at whom you're aiming the book. Yeah. So are you telling me that you have an invisible barrier at the core of your being? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Okay. So we're on the same wavelength. Anyway, now that we know a little about the Jade Academy and gotten to know some of the characters, how about a little excerpt from the book so that we can get a taste for the story? Do you have a scene you can share? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I'd love to read one of my favorite scenes. It was, a, at the very least, it was one of my all-time favorites to write. Um, this is a, about a third of the way through the book. It's a scene in which Bobby has gone missing, and um, Jinx, who has been, was partnered with him on this expedition that they're involved in, is trying to figure out what to do. Um, you know, he's, he's sort of panicked, and he's trying to, um, to, to try and find Bobby. So... Uh, Here's the scene. Jinx's throat hurt. For the past ten minutes, he'd paced up and down the base of the foothills, yelling for Bobby. Not that it had done any good. The dense fog muffled the sound. Heck, Bobby probably couldn't hear me if he was standing right on top of me. Clearly, it was time to try something else. Sticking his hands out in front of him like a zombie, Jinx took off walking. After a few steps, he adjusted his path heading more to his right. He went a few more yards and turned again. 
He continued for several more minutes, constantly adjusting his heading to follow his senses. Let instinct be my guide. Lead me to Bobby, he thought. He ended up at a rotten tree stump with a hollow base. As he approached, a badger emerged from the hollow. Rising on its hind legs, the badger growled and bared its teeth. Please don't eat me, said Jinx, stumbling backwards. I'm a big fan of the University of Wisconsin. I hear they have a great veterinary department. The angry badger retreated to its den, allowing Jinx to slump to the floor. So much for trusting my intuition. Jinx sat, folded his legs, and closed his eyes. Perhaps he could create a telepathic link. He knew the technique and theory. All he needed was willpower and concentration. It took several minutes, but finally he detected a nearby presence. Excitement spread through him like wildfire. Bobby's close. I can feel it. But something felt off. He sensed a primal rage. His mind can't possibly be so primitive, thought Jinx, or so angry. In another moment, the presence fully formed in his mind. You gotta be kidding me, said Jinx, recognizing the rage from the badger he'd encountered moments before. Why do I get the feeling you and I aren't going to be friends? A second attempt put him in touch with something peaceful but wary. The creature's thoughts seemed focused on grass and leaves. Probably a deer, thought Jinx. A third attempt put him back in touch with a perturbed badger, at which point Jinx gave up rather than press his luck. With his ideas nearly depleted, Jinx tried one last trick. Using what little energy he had to amplify his voice, he shouted again through the thick fog. With luck, the added power would carry his call far enough to reach Bobby. He knew imagery was crucial, and so he pictured his shouts slicing through the air like samurai swords. When that failed to produce results, he switched to baseballs. His voice carried up into the air, over the outfield wall, and into the upper deck. Just for fun, he put his sister's face on one of the baseballs and watched it sail out of sight. It's a grand slam, said Jinx, throwing up his arms and dancing around in a circle. A moment later, he let his hands fall to his sides. Even if Bobby heard him, he wouldn't be able to respond. Besides, it hadn't felt like it was working anyway. The ringing in his ear suggested he'd only been amplifying the sound inside his own head. Better to quit while I'm ahead of the game, thought Jinx, and giggled at his own pun. Out of ideas, Jinx paced back and forth as he tried to think of what else to do. If he went for help and Bobby showed up, their earlier embarrassment would pale in comparison to the ridicule they'd both receive. On the other hand, he'd never be able to live with himself if Bobby lay somewhere injured while he stood around doing nothing. Making sure his shoes were double-knotted, Jinx turned towards the heart of the forest and began to run. You know something, when I read this, one of the things that I liked about it was the fact that you pay attention to details that would never occur to me in that last sentence, making sure that his shoes were double-knotted. That's the type of thing that I think characterizes somebody who's really in touch with the nuances of writing. And I write different types of books, and I never have to worry about that stuff. So so I congratulate you for being able to pay attention to details like that. It's clever. Yeah, well, well, thank you. I mean, that is very much Jinx's character. And so, uh, you know, he, he speaks to me in terms of, you know, wanting to double knot his shoes, so to speak, before he takes off running because because he wouldn't want to trip and fall. And it's uh, thank you. But, yeah, that's that's just Jinx being Jinx. <laughs> well, it's good that you invented him that way. <laughs> anyway, there are several themes in your book that I found interesting. The first one was fascinating for me as it's a topic in which I've always been interested Blending fantasy with paranormal phenomena. Yeah, so that's actually at the very core of the book. It's a big part of what drove me to write the book in the first place. I I really wanted to find a way to merge those two. And part of that involves moving supernatural away from from pure magic. And and you have to have some sort of device or devices in order to do that. You know, if if you use magic... To, to do things, then you really don't need an explanation. You know, it's possible because magic. Um, and that's true for, you know, a variety of books in which they have flying broomsticks and fireballs and dragons and there's dwarves and there's elves. There's no explanation other than magic as to how these things are possible or how they came about. I, I didn't want any of that. So there there is, you know, no 
dragons and elves. There's no broomsticks. There's no fireballs or any of that sort of thing in the book intentionally because I wanted to walk the line uh, far closer between what is pure fantasy and what could actually be real. So tell me, if it's not magic, how exactly do paranormal phenomena manifest in this story? Right. So the anima that we talked about before, that's sort of the, the why, the why it's possible. Okay. So the, the, the characters in the book are able to perform these tasks because they're tapping into this spiritual, uh, this, this universal life energy. Um, the, the process that Bobby goes through is one of training and that's very much the how, um, there are a variety of, of factors that are, are frequently considered to be common denominators for, for doing energy work. So in the realm of, of things like yoga and meditation and, and Reiki, for example, or, or even, even um, prayer, um, the, the common denominators are typically breathing, posture, and focus. So those are incorporated to a certain extent in the book. Bobby learns these things. He's learning to to focus his thoughts, to concentrate, um, you know, in the things like sitting upright and your your spine straightened and stuff like that. All of that is the is the how, um, and that constitutes sort of the core of Bobby's meditation training. And um, you know, that was in, inspired actually partially by one of the books I read a long time ago called The Celestine Prophecy, where the the characters in that book develop the ability to see auras uh, in people's energies and feel their sense their emotions um, and I, I liked that uh, that phenomenon as presented in that book and so you know I took it I played with it I adapted a little bit I kind of took it to the next level in, in my mind. Can you give us some specific examples of anima and how it works in this book? Sure so uh, we've talked on a, you know we've touched base on a couple of them already so clairvoyance you know that's that's Bobby's grandfather's greatest gift um, and that you know, it isn't flung around willy-nilly in the book. People aren't running around, you know, making, making um, uh, you know, prophecies, you know, left and right. But it is a central part of, of the storyline because it what, it's what leads Bobby on this journey of discovery. Um, but we also have um, communion with nature and with animals. So, uh, you know, Bobby uh, encounters uh, this mother bear at numerous times throughout the book. And there's uh, sort of a strange relationship going on there. Uh, there is the phenomenon of remote viewing, and uh, for me, I actually took that and I adapted it. I, I gave it a special name. I call it the Cronenberg technique because it's uh, the, the methodology I use is not one of viewing other people, but rather of, of being able to to locate an object or sense an object's you know direction or location. And um, so I had some fun with that. But the majority of the um, the majority of the actual phenomenon in the book are far more mundane. So it's things like serendipity, you know, intuition or instinct. Um, these are the things that happen on a f far more regular basis in the book where these characters, you know, have strong hunches or things happen for, you know, seemingly, you know, as a coincidence. But it's all interconnected because they're connected to the life energy. And so everything is connected. Um. Uh, excuse me. There's also an educational component which interests me because I'm an educator. What I found intriguing is that you take from the number of disciplines, science, cultures, philosophy. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, when you when you call something magic, you don't need an explanation for it. You just you can just do it. But I didn't want that. It was very intentional. And like I said, very much at the core of the book. So I tried to provide some some pseudoscientific explanations as to how the, you know, the the um, existence of anima can be and how it can be can be used. So. Uh, I, I studied, I wouldn't say I studied, but I read up on quantum physics a while back. Uh, I read a book called Taking the Quantum Leap by Fred Allen Wolf, and I was fascinated by the double slit experiment that he talks about in that book, as well as the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment. And these things just, you know, they opened up my mind to how to structure uh anima and the existence of spiritual energy in such a way that it, it can be and, and hopefully is perceived as being plausible. And then we also have the genetic aspects that I mentioned in these in the book characters, you know, are, are tested for alpha genes, omega genes. Um, and that is another, you know, explanation or, or uh, uh, device that's put out there. 
and um you know it's ultimately it's it's truly no no more um realistic or possible than you know saying Wingardium Leviosa, you know, to to try and, and levitate, uh, but it hopefully gives the reader the sense that these things could actually be real. Scott, I'm a scientist, and I want you to know that I appreciate your using the term pseudoscientific. I have no objection to pseudoscience as long as people label it as such, because pseudoscience is often a lot more entertaining than real science. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, at, at its very core, the book is is classified as fantasy, you know, because unless I could somehow prove that these things could actually happen, which of course I can't, uh, you know, it's it's tough to, to put it in the realm of uh, of anything else. So uh, trying to call it true science would would be a lie. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> what about the references to various cultures and philosophies in the book? Where do those come from? Uh, so a lot of the uh, the the. Cultural references come from my interest in Asian cultures and in Buddhism. I spent some time in China and actually lived in Thailand for for a while, um, a a while back. And so I've always been sort of fascinated with with those aspects. Um, A lot of the cultural references came from a lot of research. Um, There is a really fun location inside the, uh, the academy called the Archives, and the archives is sort of a giant storage facility for all the things that um, that the monks and the academics have encountered over the years that they they perceive as possibly having value and is are, are worthy of further study. Uh, but I, 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 you know, took the the concept of sort of this storage room or this basement, so to speak, and and you know, and put it on steroids. So down there we have all sorts of machines and vehicles and, and planes and submarines and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, everything from Roman chariots to Western stagecoaches. And uh, I did a lot of research for, for all of those sorts of things because I wanted them to be as authentic uh, and, and come across as, as genuine as possible. So lots of time spent on the Internet looking at these things. And then there are, you know, the environmental aspects, the fact that the book takes place largely in Tibet, um, I researched things like animals and the trees and the plants because, of course, I didn't want to have a, a particular animal in the scene. And turns out that it's not native to Tibet. You know, I wouldn't want to, to mention a bunch of trees or plants and have it turn out that they don't grow in that region. Um, and then even just the architecture of, of the, the monastery itself, uh, all of it is, like I said, just a lot of research. Um, tell me some more about the philosophies in the book. Can you give us some specifics? Sure. So uh, most of the philosophies in the book focus around the monks' sacred scrolls. These are the original Buddhist texts that morphed over the years as they came to um, uh, evolve their their skills regarding the use of anima, the ability to control the spiritual life energy. So they have these sacred texts that they study for, for guidance. And uh, in the book, the academics actually have the possession of these scrolls. So the monks are um, sort of, they're not slaves, but they are beholden to, to the academics, and they, they need them in order to, uh, to, to gain access. So one of the main philosophies in the book is this concept of, of right and wrong and, you know, whether doing, doing the right thing regardless of consequences, and figuring out what is the right thing. Do you even necessarily inherently know what is right? Um, Bobby goes through a very similar philosophical uh, um, uh, journey of discovery. Uh, As I mentioned, he has to deal with the the negative emotions, the anger and the hate, and um, come to to grips with his his emotions in order to be able to um, access his abilities. Because again, Although he might have this special genetic predisposition, accessing the, his abilities is very much something you had to, he has to earn. And that, that was, is a big part of the book. He has to earn, and it's not just given. You know, that's a very valuable instructional, I don't know whether the word motif is applicable, for the people at whom you're, earn, you're aiming the book, namely young adults. Because one of the things that bothers me about today's world is that there is this sense of entitlement that you're entitled to this and you're entitled to that. And I grew up in a world in which you had to earn this stuff. And I think it's important that, uh, that this be stressed. And I'm glad you did so. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, I did do that intentionally to go back briefly. And we can talk about Ashley, the character that uh, I mentioned before, the headmistress's daughter, you know, she is entitled. She is sort of just naturally gifted. 
And um, there's a, a confrontation between the two of them uh, very early on in which, um, you know, Bobby, who who struggles throughout most of the book, is possibly given an opportunity to study with her. and, and um, But she's looking for naturally, innately brilliant people. And the the issue that I wanted to have in this book is exactly what you described. You know, at its core, life is a struggle and you have to work hard and you have to strive to achieve your goals. And so uh, I very much wanted my protagonist to have to go through the, you know, the hero's journey, so to speak, uh, in order to to achieve success. Um, where did these philosophies come from? Did you create them or are they things you studied? Uh, a, a big portion of them are things that I, um, I, I was exposed to uh, when I was younger. I was involved in some, some various programs, most namely the uh, YMCA summer and winter camp programs that I went to as a young teen. And those programs taught me a lot about responsibility, uh, a lot about um, just what it is to, um, to try and be a good person. They actually have uh, some challenges that they, they can help set for you, at least the program that I went to, that will set benchmarks and set goals for you to try and, and be the best person that you can be. So that's a big part of where a lot of this came from. I don't know whether at least initially it was intentional or not, but it's just sort of part of who I am. And so I guess it got projected into my writing that I wanted Bobby's abilities to be grounded in knowledge and wisdom um, and not just the pseudoscientific explanations. He, you know, again, he has to earn it and he has to earn it by being a good person or learning what it is to be a good person. What motivated you to write this particular book? Let's see here. So first and foremost, it was looking for this kind of book, looking for a book that was fun and fast paced that sort of a, you know, had a fantasy feel to it, but that had a spiritual core and I couldn't find it. So I set about trying to write it. Uh, I grew up reading fantasy when I was young. Um, I used to, my friend and I we would go to bookstores and we would get, you know, two, three, four books all by the same author in a series. And we would, you know, pass them back and forth amongst each other. I, I read them voraciously when I was younger. So Terry Brooks, Terry Goodkind, Robert Jordan, Anne McCaffrey, Pierce Anthony. These are all lists of various authors that I, you know, I really loved when I was younger. Uh, but over time, and by the time I was probably in college, I would say, I consider them to be pleasant diversions, but I wasn't feeling like I was learning or growing from, from having read them. So uh, later on in life, I switched to reading spiritual fiction. I read um, books like Life of Pi, The Alchemist, um, Celestine Prophecy that I mentioned earlier, Siddhartha, The Story of the First Buddha. And uh, I really took a lot of value from some of those books. I mean, a lot of them, they, they feel like there's something really important there, that there's a, a really, you know, meaningful, powerful message there that you're supposed to, you know, understand and, and that will help you grow. But I wasn't necessarily enamored with the stories themselves. They, like I said, they weren't the kind of fun, fast paced books that I had enjoyed reading when I was younger. So that's why I basically set about the process of trying to create it, trying to make a story that I would want to read. Um, as an author, do you construct the plot and then the characters to fit or do you have characters in mind and weave the plot around them? The the process of writing started for me with the character, with Bobby. It all started with the idea of what the blend of spiritual fiction and fantasy would look like. I wanted to follow the sort of classic archetype of fantasy, uh, which, you know, I mentioned I did not want my character to have to grow up, you know, estranged from his parents or an orphan or a distant, rel you know, with a distant relative or on the street or anything like that. But figuring out how I could still follow the, the classic storyline of, of fantasy, especially high fantasy, um, was important. So I spent quite a bit of, of time, several weeks, in fact, thinking about how I would structure my story that I could get into that place. I could could follow it eventually, but it wouldn't start from that point. And so I, I had, ultimately, I came up with this idea of skipping the first generation, you know, that his parents are normal. He grows up in a normal household. Um, he's living, you know, an average teen life, so to speak, at the time that the events all start. And that's what ultimately launched me into the book. Yeah. So I took off from there. Oh, okay. So you construct all of your plots based on your characters? 
You know what? Ironically, uh, no. Bobby is really the exception to that rule uh, because he spoke to me because he was the catalyst for writing the books. He, you know, he drove the the bus, so to speak. But nowadays, because I've I've actually written the first three books in this series, and I'm you know I've written about half of book four. So having written these three and a half books, I pretty much write off of a plot. Uh, I, I do what's called a scene summary. So I write down a couple sentences as to what the scene's supposed to be about. And um, I then try to, uh, you know, write based upon that script, so to speak. But that being said, it is still very much a system of discovery as opposed to creation. Because I will have characters in the book who I kind of expect or assume are going to behave a certain way. And that's not necessarily true. As I get into the scene... Uh, the characters will oftentimes speak to me and they, they want to act in a different way. So sometimes I actually have to corral them and keep them from going off on tangents and, you know, having big, long monologues. Um, you know, and in that case, I kind of have to impose my will as the author. But first and foremost, it is structured around the scene and what I'm trying to, to, um, to do to get from point A to point B. You know, I know you're a dog person, and there are aspects of man's relationship with other animals interwoven into your book. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge dog lover. Uh, we could probably fill up uh, you know, a whole other interview talking just about that. Uh, I have a 50-pound a um, uh, rescue dog named Patch. He's a, a white and brindle-coated um, He's a, a mix of German Shepherd and, and Schnauzer, uh, I think is, is what they said. Uh, he might have a little pit in him, and, and, and he's my love, but I love, I love dogs in general, and I love nature, and I love animals in general, which is why one of the uh, major themes, not just in this book, but in the series in general, is that of communion with nature. I um, used to do quite a bit of hiking and camping when I was younger. I was in the Boy Scouts, and as I mentioned, I used to go up to YMCA camp in, in the hills, in the mountains, and you know, being around nature has always been something that's very special to me. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of calm. Um, I just, I love that. So I wanted to bring that aspect of man's relationship with animals and with nature into the book and have that be a part of the growth process for Bobby. Uh, where exactly did all these storylines and ideas involving animals come from? Because to me, they're very unusual. Yeah, uh, I think they're they're born out of my imagination, but they're inspired by some of some of the events uh, that I've experienced in life. So, for example, I, I took a trip with my parents, uh, with my mother and my nieces, to Alaska not that long ago, and uh, we we saw the bears. We saw these big grizzly bears, and uh, there's something majestic about bears. And you know that actually was after the book was written, but I had had experiences like that previously, and. I think that's a big portion of where things like the the mother bear and the cubs, that's where that sort of came into play. I, I wanted Bobby to have a relationship uh, and interactions with a very majestic creature, a very powerful and, and beautiful and you know creature with a lot of respect. Uh, it really just comes down to the sense of awe and wonder at the world around us and, and bringing that into this realm because I think it fits very well with the concept of anima and the universal life, you know, life energy. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think if you and I had uh, discussed this, we'd have different experiences with animals, especially bears, because when I went to summer <laughs> camp when I was a kid, we would go out to the local garbage dump and watch the bears there, and you get a different picture of bears <laughs> at a garbage dump. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's talk a little about you. Everyone's life experiences contribute to their philosophy of life. Which of your experiences have had the most impact? Um, so definitely my childhood. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, the Boy Scouts and the hiking, and the camping that I did. Uh, we talked about the YMCA camp that I, that I did. All of these things were, um, were central to the man I've grown up to be. And I'd like to think that those were you know, some of the things that helped mold some of my better characteristics. Um, but there's also been quite a few experiences I've had in, in my adult life. So nowadays I do volunteer work with children. Um, I've been a basketball coach for many years. Um, these are things that have taught me not only to appreciate children and to see the wonder and the beauty in, in, in teaching them and nurturing them, um, but also 
the perspective of, of wanting to see them excel. And, and so that's sort of part of what I, I put in there with Bobby was wanting him to get from this, this negative place, this dark place that he is in very, very quickly in the book and, and help him develop and grow and learn. And so that's all sort of born out of my natural um, mentoring, volunteering nature that I did over the years. Um, and then there's, you know, I've had some health issues. So we mentioned the, the time I spent in China and Thailand. Um, the, the health issues caused me to try and, and really focus on seeking balance in my life. And that was part of what led me to read a lot of the spiritual fiction that I talked about earlier. And the, the health issues and the time in, in Asia really just gave me another, you know, gave me a, a lot of time and in, in focus on what's important in life, you know, how to, how to balance life. Because they say if you don't have health, you don't have anything, right? And at the same time, when you go to the other side of the world and you see a very different way of living than, than the L.A. style in which I grew up, um, you know, with having a, a car and, and, and a rent or mortgage and a, a cell phone and, a, you know, a nine to five job, um, you come to have an appreciation for, for other aspects in life. Yeah, you know, I think the idea of balance that is inherent to a lot of Asian cultures is one of the things that we can learn from them. And I think it comes through in your book. I think balance is important. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of young adults don't have enough of and don't appreciate because, as you say, we're living in L.A. or the United States. And I think it's good that they read a book like this because it might open their eyes to something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in my personal opinion, balance in life First of all, it's not a it's not a finish line. You know, you're not going to get there and say, "Okay, I'm now perfectly balanced in life from now until the day I die." It is a constant readjustment. You know, whether it's it's work versus play. You know, whether it's spending time with your friends or or you know being alone and in, in, in working on personal development. Whether it's watching TV or simply or reading a book. Um, there's always a balance in life. You know, even if it's something as simple as, "Do I want to?" You know. Um, indulge and have a, a you know a greasy hamburger you know and a big piece of cheesecake today for dinner or do I want to have a salad um, you know it's it's a constant interaction and so that was again something I wanted to bring into the book and have as sort of a, of a, a philosophical um, issue that that Bobby and, and the other characters as well have to address. Um, Scott, do you have any future book projects on the horizon? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I've actually finished book two and three. Uh, I've been in, in the process of editing, um, going back and re-editing book two. So I'm actually hoping to work on that um, later today and, and during this week. It's it's finalized from a from a plot standpoint, but it's still, um, you know, you can always make things better. I haven't I haven't quite gotten the balance, so to speak, in, ter- <laughs> in terms of in terms of feeling comfortable that it that it's where I want it to be. Um, but um, so just really briefly. One of the things that I have shifted into after this first book is the the idea of of Bobby's adventures providing a a, a backdrop to reimagine um, ancient myths and legends, and I, I really had a lot of fun with that. So Bobby's the second book is um, it's called Bobby Ether and the Temple of Eternity, or at least that's the tentative title, and it's a reimagining of the Fountain of Youth. So it you know it takes place largely in Guatemala at this um, this ancient Mayan temple you know, hidden deep in the rainforest. And um, again, I, I sort of reimagine, I don't retell the story of Ponce de Leon. It is a modern day story, but it is a reimagining of what exactly the Fountain of Youth could be uh, and how that, that story could have come about. Um, let's see, book three. I love book three. Uh, it's, it's probably my favorite. Uh, it is sort of a reimagining of the great Sphinx at Giza. And... Um, sort of a mystery surrounding how that particular um, uh, phenomenon came to exist because it's, it is very mysterious and really incredible um, in case, you know, you or, or your listeners didn't know that. And I had some fun sort of reimagining uh, a, a backstory involving sort of the ancient Egyptian gods and, and the legends involving them. Uh, that was pretty fun. And then book four um, touches on the library, the great library at Alexandria, and actually has a fun little backstory involving Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. 
So in other words, people who read the subsequent books will not only get science, philosophies, and culture, they'll also get a little history. <laughs> I, would, I would hesitate to call it history because it certainly is not uh, historically accurate. But again, a, a reimagining, a retelling of these ancient myths and legends with hopefully a, a unique and fun twist. And they're not necessarily the entire story per se, but they're a backdrop. The idea was to bump up the level of, of interest in the books by having Bobby involved in something that we can all uh, sort of, of, of peg uh, you know, ourselves to, that we, we remember what that, you know, that story is supposed to be like and, um, and tell it in a, in a different, unique, and hopefully fun way. Got, one of the things that got me to segue into science was reading science fiction. And, there you go. Uh, and I feel that anytime you introduce anything like this in a book and young people are reading it, it always has the possibility that not only will they enjoy it, but they'll learn something and be motivated to pursue learning more. And so from that standpoint, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Well, thank you. I, I hope that that's true. Because again, you know, from my time spent coaching and um, and doing volunteer work, I, I love to have kids grow and, and develop and learn. And so if that can be something that I can bring into this book and that they find some value in it, then, you know, then at least that portion of my job is done. We're absolutely on the same wavelength. Um, I usually conclude interviews by asking the author how our listeners can get in touch with you. Sure. So the easiest way to find out pretty much everything related to, to me and my books, my future writing, the current projects, etc., is on my website. That is R. Scott Boyer. So that's R-S-C-O-T-T-B-O-Y-E-R.com. And like I said, that's sort of a, a hub for everything um, related to the Bobby Ether series. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Again, R. Scott Boyer um, would be my author page. There is a page for the uh, Bobby Ether series. It's called the Bobby Ether series Facebook group or Facebook uh, uh, page. And then uh, I'm on Twitter. So you can always send me a tweet at R. Scott Boyer. And the book itself is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound. Um, so I'd search for it online, but it should be available through any of those sources. And last but not least, I'm also on Goodreads. Again, R. Scott Boyer. I think there's a, I think there's a period in that one. It's R. Dot, you know, Scott Boyer. But uh, you can find me on Goodreads and, and track me there and, um, you know, leave me a comment or ask a question. Scott, thanks so much and best of luck with the book. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Jim. 